really big believer that you need to have a BFF in finance. One of the things that I think is so important is really understanding your business model because your business model profoundly influences what you ship and critically what you don't ship. This is something that I learned and really see at Shazam. If you want to, in a subscription business, drive long-term enterprise value, net revenue retention is the fuel. Net revenue retention is a pretty well understood formula. You know, it's acquisition, retention, expansion, and resurrection. Understanding the components of that and breaking that down meant that as a product group, we were then able to see how they all join and how therefore our jobs to be done and our activation metrics actually drive economic value for the enterprise. Welcome to Product with Banash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Rhiannon White, who is currently Chief Product Officer at Clue, where she helps a team of passionate people bring the female-founded, female-led period and reproductive health tracking app to millions and millions of women and people with cycles worldwide. Previously, Rhiannon was Chief Product Officer at Vend, helping small and medium retailers worldwide manage and grow their businesses. Super excited to have you here, Rhiannon. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Axel. My pleasure. Why don't we start with a lightning introduction of what you've been up to, you know, in your career so far as a product person? Sounds great. So for the past 10 years, I have been in product and falling more and more in love with the discipline every day. So as, as you very kindly mentioned, I'm, I'm currently the CPO at, at Clue, which I, is just an amazing product that helps empower millions of women and people with cycles with, with data and insight about their health. And, and I, I, I am very as a data-driven product person and insight-driven product person, I believe this is the key. This is the key to leverage, right? And so I love working with a product that brings this to people in their daily lives. Prior to joining Clue, I was at the CPO at Vend, which is a wonderful Kiwi-founded SaaS product that helps retailers manage and grow their businesses. And at Vend, I was part of the management team that led the exit for the business. Prior to that, I spent a couple of years as the chief digital officer at a bank in New Zealand. And uh, I started my product career at Shazam, uh, the music recognition app based out of their Silicon Valley office. I transitioned to product from marketing. Everybody comes to product from somewhere, right? And I came from marketing and I spent the first 10 years of my career in marketing. My last marketing role was at the BBC where I led marketing for BBC iPlayer. And before that, I spent four years in political marketing in New Zealand, which were deeply formative years for me and where I still forms a lot of my learnings and thinking about the world of work. Brilliant. So first of all, let me say how it is great to speak to someone who's worked on iPlayer because I'm a big fan and obviously someone who's worked at Shazam, which is, you know, a household brand now. Everybody, everybody knows Shazam. Everybody's used it at some point. Thanks for the context. That's super helpful. You mentioned you were chief product officer at Vend. Before speaking to you, I didn't know this company at all. And then when I did a little bit of digging, I realized, oh my God, there was like this thing happening in New Zealand and was no, wasn't aware at all, right? Why don't you tell us a little bit about Vend and some of your work there? Yeah, Vend, Vend was an amazing experience for me. And Vend was a brilliant company founded by this amazing man, Vaughan, and, and his, his wife and their founding team. They, they really spotted a gap they were, the, they were the first people to realize that retail and retailers were almost tragically offline and needed to become online and that, the, that a cloud-based solution would be transformative for small and medium retailers in particular who, you know, have to be so cost conscious. And it's, it's really hard being a small and medium retailer. You know, you don't have a lot of time, you don't have a lot of capital, you don't have a lot of cash. And so tools and solutions that can help you manage your business and grow your business are really critical. And so they saw this opportunity and built, in fact, the first cloud-based point of sale on, on I think it started on the on Mac and iPad and then grew the business from there. And I joined Ben's trajectory. They had a very classic arc if you, uh, that happens, I think. You know, they had spotted a gap, developed a really innovative product, grew quite quickly, and then kind of had the thing that happens when you grow quite quickly and then you start to like, where do you go? What do you focus on? And how do you, and then a lot more competition arises in the market. How do you maintain product leadership in the category and, and when that happens? And so Vaughan had stepped down as the CPO. And so I came in to, I guess, it, you know, help scale the team and help them move, move forward so that they could, I guess, keep growing and, and own that category leadership that they really, you know, that thanks to Vaughan, they'd really created. It was an amazing few years. I mentioned that we, we led the exit of the business after 
after a few years that I've been there, which was a, a brilliant outcome for the business. And, and we ended up joining actually our largest competitor, who was just uh, every stereotype that you could have of Canadians. So Canadian companies, so warm and welcoming, such an amazing experience joining the kind of crazy, wonderful group of companies and the ideas that they had going on. And so, yeah, it was, that was spent. What would you say was some of the critical dimensions or, you know, things you wanted to cultivate within the team at Vend when you stepped into the role of CPU? Like, what are some of these things that actually made this exit possible and made this story a success story, right? Yeah. For me, one of the things that I think is so important is really understanding your business model, because your business model profoundly influences what you ship and critically what you don't ship. This is something that I learned, I started to learn and really see at Shazam and really think deeply about it. Shazam and thought deeply about it at the bank. The thing I love about SaaS and subscription businesses is that your, your revenue model and your product model are very aligned. You have to turn up with value regularly for your customers, for them to then pay you regularly. And so it, it's, it's a really nice alignment. I, I think a, an example of how that can be misaligned is when I was at Shazam, we were building an advertising business and we built a very strong advertising business. And advertising, advertising as a business model requires two things, right? It requires reach, which we had, and it requires time spent. And time spent is like, it's why Facebook and YouTube and all these people are so engaging is because they, they literally need you to spend a lot of time on the platform to show you the impressions for the ads. Its core value proposition is about speed. I, I literally had a conversation with a very well met like sales leader. This, he was doing his job who was pointing out that the advertising unit that we had on the recognition screen while the algorithm was working was our highest performing ad unit. And maybe we could slow the recognition screen down a little bit so that we could get some video in there because that's a higher yield. Like, okay, that's a direct contrast between your product model and your revenue model, right? Whereas in a subscription business or a SaaS business, that's, uh, the, the two are very aligned. And so when I joined Venn, the first thing that we the CFO and I actually spent time on, I'm a really big believer that product people, you need to, you need to, you need to have a BFF in finance. <laughs> and the CFO at the time, who later became the CEO of Venn, amazing, amazing woman. And her and I, you know, I remember in my sitting down in my first session with her and going through the numbers and then saying, well, who owns net revenue retention and who owns retention? It's a subscription business. Like who on the management team owns that? And we realized that nobody owned it because Venn had had great top line growth for years. And, and what happens often with businesses is they focus on the top line growth. But if you want to, in a subscription business, drive long-term enterprise value, net revenue retention or net retention is the fuel. And so her and I agreed that I would take net revenue retention as a metric. I would own that in conjunction with my colleague who was the chief revenue officer. And so that meant the product for the first time there owned a revenue metric and that we were on the hook for an actual metric in the P&L. And it was very transformative for us as a team because... Net revenue retention is a pretty well understood formula. You know, it's acquisition, retention, expansion, and resurrection. I don't know why they call it resurrection. It makes it quite religious, but anyway, you know, winbacks. And we call it winbacks at Blue. And so understanding the components of that and breaking that down, because we were on the hook for it, meant that as a product group, we were then able to look at, okay, how does that work? Oh, look at that. It connects to our jobs to be done. Oh, it connects to our activation metrics. We can see how they all join and how therefore our jobs to be done and our activation metrics actually drive economic value for the enterprise. And so we could start to draw links between, okay, if we improve this thing in onboarding, more retailers get through to being active trading. So our acquisition improves, which look at that, pushes up in our hearts. And we it's, would, it's like this clarity between business and product outcomes, right? It's, it's actually deeply liberating because it's so, everybody wants to see impact from their work. And it's, when you have a framework and you understand all the links, then you can really innovate within that. You know, we, we did, we, the team, did amazing work on the retention component. We managed to drive established retention. So it's established retailers who'd gotten through the onboarding period. We got established retention under 1% per month. Right? It was phenomenal, the work. that, And through that clarity of the metrics. And sure enough, there was massive impact on net revenue retention. And actually, it also showed the holes in the business, right? Like it showed that we needed more in the expansion, that we didn't have enough offerings. We didn't create enough product value in the expansion part of the model. And so we were able to then focus our efforts there. And, so, and sure enough, we moved net revenue retention 10 percentage points before we even started layering in the, the expansion offerings. So it really, it was a very impactful way of looking at it. And by owning that metric, it really changed. It changed how we could talk about impact, how we could show it, and how we collaborated across the company. That's brilliant. I want to jump on something you said. So you mentioned, you know, 
having a, having a good knowledge of, of the business model. And one thing that kind of, it kind of resonates. And one thing that I'm thinking is how do you, first of all, do you look for the skill in product managers you're recruiting into your team, product people in general, not necessarily PMs? And how do you evaluate that people actually are good at this, right? That is a very good question. I have to say, you know, I'm not, I've had to really learn this. This is not my natural, you know, when people talk about my back, you know, when you say, oh, my background is in or kind of my foundational years was not in anything related to this. I, I mentioned that I spent those very formative years in, in political marketing and we're very data driven in political marketing, but there are no P&Ls anywhere in sight. And so the the kind of realization that I had to fall in love with the P&L and I had to come to understand the P&L was something that I had to learn and I am still learning. You know, I, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to be partnered with somebody in finance and, and have a, you know, a partner in crime to, to pour over the numbers together with. I don't actually, I don't expect it of product people when I'm hiring. I expect it of them. I expect that they should want to learn and that they should. It's a curiosity, um, right? Yeah. I mean, when I recruit, I tend to think I have a kind of mental model around aptitude, attitude, skills, and experience ranked in that order right because aptitude you you can't you can't teach aptitude like someone has the aptitude to learn or not you know to your point around curiosity attitude you can't teach they either want to learn or they don't skills and experience you can teach so you know it's kind of like last i mean it's still critical but it's stat ranked third and in terms of what i'm looking for so i don't expect product people to come with that background i do expect them to to learn and to want to learn and to start to understand the connections between the business model, between the P&L and product and product strategy and what we want to do and start thinking, because at the end of the day, and the acquisition really taught me this, if you don't own the means of production, you are the means of production. So you need to understand capital and you need to understand how capital works. And and like the CEO, that is their job they, and the board, that's what they think about and how they think. And if you want to be an impactful, successful product person, just like everything, you know, we have to understand our user's language. We need to understand the CEO's language and the board's language, and that is capital. Brilliant. Thanks for that. I also want to jump on something you mentioned around everybody, like this flipping moment where everybody in the cross-function team suddenly understands with a high level of clarity the, this link between business outcomes and product outcomes and how everybody, you know, is now working towards the same goal. How, can you tell us a little bit more about how did this materialize day to day, right? Like in the, you know, the, the daily operations of product designers, tech leads, product managers doing their jobs. How, how did that work? And I think you also mentioned how this helps in the prioritization work, deciding what to ship, right? Well, it really shows up in terms of when a, when a product team and a triangle in particular of, you know, the, the engineering lead, the product manager, the product designer are thinking about which problems and opportunities to tackle next. It shows up in terms of what is the relationship between problem A and which component of the formula and which job to be done and which activation metric, right? How do we, so the thing with when you're choosing a problem to solve, right, you, it always needs to be both at scale, so it needs to be large enough that it's valuable to solve and valuable, valuable enough to solve. And so it shows up in terms of the, the work that the teams need to do in terms of choosing which problems to work on and deciding, okay, this one is both large enough and valuable enough. And that's how, they, that's how you can answer the valuable question. Because often the valuable question is hard to answer, right? It's like, I don't know, it feels good or it feels bad and therefore we should work on this. But it, that's actually how you can answer that in a concrete way that's more than, and, and actually often those gut instincts, particularly if product people are, and I mean that in the broader sense, so product engineering and design are really close to customers or users. Often their instinct is right about something being valuable because that's actually, you know, product senses just patent recognition at scale that's informed by lots of, seeing lots of the user's problems. But if you can't articulate it in a way that makes sense to the rest of the organization, then they're not going to, Again, this point around, if you can't articulate it in the language that the CEO gets, then the CEO is going to be sitting there going, well, why are you working on this? And so that's, that's how it shows up and it's useful. It's also super useful for building that cross, like cross-functional collaboration is genuinely hard, right? I mean, we all know this and it's very hard. I think it's particularly hard. It's always hard, even within the disciplines, within product engineering and design, but outside of product engineering and design, it gets harder because there's a fundamental 
mental model clash around product engineering design. Like our, our core tenants are define the problem, not the solution. You know, we, that we're supposed to be, that we want to work with, that, you know, we don't want to work with like specific deadlines. We want to work often. I mean, I personally think time is a very useful constraint, but it's not the same framework as, you know, for example, a salesperson who has a monthly quota and the end of the month, it restarts again, right? And, and every other discipline, think about the problem, not the solution, doesn't fly. I mean, if you're in support, you're literally yeah. there. Like your job is to provide the solution to the person on the other end of the phone. If you correct, say to the customer, don't stay in the problem space. They'd be like, screw you, buddy. <laughs> you know, yeah. I called you You've got to show up. You've got to show up at some point. Right. And so that can make it quite hard, I think, just from a mental model point of view to do that collaboration. But when you have shared data and you have a shared metric, then you can start to collaborate towards it because then you realize that you're, you're talking about it. You're standing on the same ground together. You're not standing on two separate pieces of or two separate ice floes in the ocean. You're actually on mm-hmm. the same ice shelf. And you understand, and we saw this at Ben very strongly when, when COVID hit and we, you know, it was a bad time to be in small and medium retail when everything was yeah. shutting. It was a pretty scary time. We did a huge amount as a company to manage that. And one of the things we did was we set up a retention squad and we had representatives from every function in the company there, like including finance, for example, because cash management was super important and retention and cash management were really linked. And so by using the net revenue retention, we, when we started it, we were in crisis, obviously, as everybody was. But we started that team with the idea that we have to solve the crisis of today, but this is our opportunity to develop our cross-functional retention muscle across the whole company. And so we always had that end goal as a team. And we, sure enough, we managed to, um, as a team, stem that incredible churn. We turned it into temporary churn that was happening. And because everybody then could see, we had, we had the metrics together. We had net revenue retention as our, as our North Star metric. We had the components of it. We were looking daily at the numbers and how that was moving. We were meeting daily during the crisis moment of it. And we were running experiments daily around what, what could or couldn't impact things. And we started to learn collectively all of the things that impacted that metric. So for example, everybody in that group started to see that if the support queue blew out, then that had an impact on onboarding retention, right? And so suddenly we all knew, oh, okay, the support queue really matters. And it's not just support trying to say, hey, the support queue really matters. Like we could, because we were all watching the same data together every day and with the same metric. And that was really how we, on a daily basis, started to transform that. And then of course, all those people would take it back to their, their various home teams and spread that knowledge and that insight. And it was how we moved that forward. That's super, super interesting. I'm going to jump back to something you mentioned earlier. You talked about NRR, net revenue retention, and breaking it down into its four components, acquisition, retention, expansion, and resurrection winbacks. From a product organization point of view, did you have a squad dedicated to, for each of these components? Like, how did that work? That's a very, yeah, that's a yes and no answer. So to start with, we didn't. To start with, as we started to work with that, we, we asked we had teams that were focused on kind of jobs that, that users were trying to do in the product. So we had a team that was focused on selling, right? The experience of making a sale. We had a team focused on inventory. And so then we would ask them to think about, well, okay, you want to choose a problem to work on, which part of the formula does it relate to? But then as we started to explore that and get better, we started to realize that certain jobs in the product actually correlated more strongly to components of the formula. So for example, inventory management, getting your inventory into a point of sale is a huge pain point and is clearly in an onboarding. So we set up a team that focused purely on onboarding. So obviously they focused on that part of the formula. But once your inventory is in there, that's actually a make or break. Like how hard is it to manage my inventory and how accurate is my inventory is a make or break for customers. And so that clearly then is retention. And, and we could see where that was. And that was where we could see that we had a hole in expansion, right? Because we had jobs that customers needed to do that were very well covered and we realized we needed to focus on the onboarding so that we did that but we had a gap in the expansion space and so we started to create and think about what the opportunities were there and, and create energy and focus on on that as well that makes sense i will also reiterate what you said about having bff in finance i think this is incredibly valuable i've had something similar happen when i was working at barclays the bank i had never worked in a bank before so a lot of this stuff like just was new to me, right? So I had to find someone who could explain to me the dynamics of how the banks makes money and the different value streams that exist in a bank of that size, specifically working across so many different products, Mm. retail banking, corporate banking, investment banking. I mean, it's it's quite complex, right? Mm. And then this also happened with somebody from the data team because I realized that in most banks, and you would have seen this, 
they are quite, they're organizing like these two main monoliths, right? There's one side, there's the business and the other side, there's technology. And, and you have like this one-to-one relationship. If you are a product manager for this business unit, there's, you speak to somebody from the technology side who has the same concerns. And I realized that my ability to have impact in what I was doing drastically changed from the moment I became friends with this guy who was in the data and analytics team. And I, even to one point, I stopped sitting in the kind of like hot desk area of product managers. I just went and sat with the data people because they just had all the tools and the insights, right? And like, it just like tr- completely transformative for me because decision-making in moldy environments like banks can, could, can be, right? Like people coming to you from everywhere saying, oh, you sh- we should do this, we should do that. Your ability to kind of like take a step back, look at what the data is telling you, look at what the qual insights are telling you, and then forming that view, playing it back to the stakeholders and saying, this is what we're going to do and this is why we're going to do it. I think that's, you know, critical, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the thing that I love about the PNL, like a PNL is, it's revealed strategy. So no matter what a company says, the PNL is where you see what really happens. Where do they really make money? <laughs> and where do they really spend their resources, right? Because there are only two things that you cannot change or get back. You can't unspend money and you cannot unspend time, right? And everything else, you can ship a new feature, you can change a feature, you can build a new thing. Everything else is not a one-way door. But time and money are one-way doors. Like there's no going back. And so the P&L shows you in black and white what's happening to time and money. And the, the reason why it's so powerful as well is because it's an apples for apples comparison, right? The reason why capital focused people use it is because it's a normalized view. And, and that's also why if you don't work in finance or, or come from a capital background, you probably don't, it's like you've worked with other metrics. It doesn't mean anything, right? Whereas a finance buddy, BFF, who can walk you through and show you, like you start to see the holes and you start to see the problems. And it was through walking through the P&L and walking the P&L with that CFO at Ben. That, that her and I, she was, she was trying to get people to listen and see. She could see the issue with the NRR and she could see that it was an issue with retention, but nobody was listening because they were focused on top line. But, but then once she, like, I was like, oh, okay, I can see it in the numbers, right? Like you can see what's happening. You can see the revealed strategy. So it's a very powerful tool and it's a very powerful way of understanding and then being able to frame the language. And again, to your, your point around that playing it back to stakeholders, you need to be able to play it back in the language that they understand. And so that finance yeah. buddy or the analytics buddy is the, is so powerful for helping us make those, those translation jumps, I guess. And, and, you know, for our own thinking as well, right? You want to, you want to be able to bounce, to bounce back your, your ideas, your view of, you know, the world and, and see if it makes sense from a financial point of view, right? Exactly. Yeah. Thanks for that. That was super insightful. Do you feel stuck not knowing how to tackle a problem or you're looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use in your role as a product person. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching to their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, Head to panache.io to get an idea of how we can help you level up today. Check out panache.io. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. I want to talk about your time at Shazam mm-hmm. because obviously everybody, everybody listening to this show right now is probably saying, well, we know Shazam, right? So such a big brand name. Everybody's used the app at some point. I find it super interesting because there's this emotional connection to your ability to, when, when you hear something like a piece of music that you really like, something emotional happens, right? And you want to have this information of, you know, who is this? Because I want to mm-hmm. listen to this later, right? And Shazam plays a big role into this very like, emotional moment. So I want to hear a little bit about your time at Shazam and what were your biggest learnings from your time at Shazam and obviously working in the Valley? There's a writer who I really love called Karen Armstrong, and she talks about how music is the fastest route to the emotions. Like it's a, it, exactly as you described, it's like an instant jumpstart into an emotional state. There are cultures on this planet that don't have money. There is no culture on this planet that doesn't have music. It is, it's something fundamental to the human brain, basically. So I agree. It's a very powerful thing. And, and the, the beautiful, I mean, Shazam again, you know, I'm, I joined late. I was not a founder of that product. It's a beautiful product because it is 
if music is a shortcut to the emotion, Shazam, as you say, is a shortcut to the discovery about what is, what is making me feel like this. And so it was such an exciting, beautiful, wonderful product to work on from, from that point of view. It was my first role in product. And I'm not going to lie, like I was terrible. <laughs> you know, I made the, the first, I transitioned from marketing and the first 13 months, I think. I, I, so I transitioned in London because obviously I was in London with the BBC and spent three months in the London office and then transitioned out to the Valley office. And the first 13 months, not 12, not, not 14, the first 13 months, I was miserable. I, I mean, miserable. I worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, and I was still not on top of it. Like I was, still wasn't doing everything that you're supposed to do as a product. I was completely overwhelmed. I think we've all been there, right? Like everybody in product, if there's one thing, if there's oh, one conversation. I, mean, I can relate. I can relate. Right? Yeah. It's the one thing every product person always experiences. And I just made... I made every mistake in the book. You know, I built what sales said. I built what the exec team said. They were excited about partnerships, you know, and lo and behold, they didn't work. It was just, oh, it was really hard going. And, and I, I slowly started to come out of it and started to kind of come out of this overwhelmed moment and realize, okay, I remember going to, because the Valley is all about the, you know, what is it like to be a top 1% product manager? And I remember going to a client at Perkins event about the top 1% manager and reading Marty Kagan's book and, and just being like, I'm like, I'm failing. I am so bad. You know, I'm not able to do this. And it's just being, and feeling almost despairing about how can I ever get there? And I started to realize, okay, I'm not completely failing. Here are the things that I am doing well. And they're actually the things that I've always done. There is a reason why we talk about communications as the number one thing PMs have to do. Like I was good at that. I was good at connecting the whole company. I was making sure the communication thing was working. I was on top of the, the data for my area and on top of creating impact in the area that I worked on, which was the advertising business and understanding the, what was happening there. I was taking ownership as a DRI, right? You know, like PMs need to do this. You need to step up and be, a, be the, the directly responsible individual. For, for our listeners, can you clarify what DRI means? The DRI concept is the directly responsible individual idea. You know, that if sometimes if you're going to do a big cross-company thing, someone's got to own that and push it and make it happen, right? And, and like manifest it in the world. And often PMs are those people, or they should be, because the whole idea of product is that you have that overview, like you care about the whole thing. You care about all the parts. And I, you know, I, I did that and I was doing that. And I slowly crawled my way out of the despair of, oh my God, this is really awful. And started to see that. And I started to have impact and we were, and I was shipping things and we were driving up the revenue and the advertising business, which was wonderful and, and very satisfying to be able to see that connection. And I knew I wasn't, I worked with these two amazing product leaders who I could see that I just wasn't as good as them. And I just wasn't getting to the heart of product the way that they did. And I, you know, I, I would look at them and think about it. And I got, I got promoted to VP because of the amount of impact I'd been able to ship and show, but I knew I still wasn't, I knew there was something missing. And I asked my colleague who later became the CPO at Shazam and is now an amazing product leader at Apple. And he, I mean, he's just one of the most amazing product people I've ever worked with. And I asked him for feedback and help around this. And he said, look, you know, you're a VP now doing all this other stuff. Great. That's great. You've got to bring it inside and you're not bringing enough inside. Yeah. <laughs> like it kind of stings a bit to hear it. Ouch. Yeah, yeah. But he was right. And there was something, it was like a light bulb moment for me because it's not that I had, like I've been watching him do this for a couple of years, but the way he brought insight was different. Like he, he's one of those guys, he's, he's so brilliant, who can, like he can write the sequel and write the queries that discovers the insight that the data team missed, that the data scientists didn't find, right? Like he's one of those guys. And so I'd always been like, well, I can't do that. And, and there's no point in spending, like, even if I spend all my time, I'm never going to be as good as him at that. And so I'd kind of been looking at it through the lens of data. But when he used the word insight, it, it helped me flip back to my marketing career because I realized that there are many different forms of insight. And that actually I, that has always been the ground in which I have usually stood. And I kind of let myself get knocked off that through the overwhelm of everything that happens when you're first in a product role and just trying to be on top of it all. And so it, it gave me a moment to think, Oh, okay. I, yeah, I can bring insight. Of course I can bring insight. Where am I going to find it? How do I do it? Like, how do I bring insight? And so I started to do that. And lo and behold, <laughs> I started to, I started to work. I managed to kill two, two really bad ideas. One that was a, a deal that was particularly beloved by the CEO and another one that was actually another, another idea that the exec team was really into. And we as a team knew that it wouldn't work, but we were doing that annoying thing that teams do where they're like, oh, I don't think it's going to work. 
But the executives, yeah. like the team, we as a team weren't bringing a why. We weren't bringing anything back. So of course the executives pushing, like in the, in the absence of an idea, they're going to push for something. That's the job. You've got to come with some some strong evidence, right? Exactly. And so started to find that. And actually we managed to stop those things that would have been a massive diversion and we would have gone down the wrong track. And we started to focus on on things that were going to drive impact. And so it was a really, it was a really important, it's still, I think about it all the time. And it's still the the single biggest lesson that I you know, share with people who want to advance in terms of becoming more and more senior in product, you have to bring insight. And it doesn't matter how you do that, right? Like you don't have to be the person who's the greatest person on SQL, you know, like my spikes, you have to think about where your spikes are, like where are you really brilliant? And my spikes are are not in SQL, (laughs) but my spikes are in being really, really close to the, because I learned those painful lessons about the P&L, like being close to the revenue, Mm -hmm. standing Mm -hmm. with that. That's why first, like my, my second spike is being really close to users because I, I am really passionately moved by people. That's why I'm in product. I love people. I'm so interested by what they do and what their problems are. And so I can be really close to the, the, the color and the touch and feel of what's going on for users and customers. And then my third spike is really around like knowing the capabilities of the team. And so being able to see like which players should I put on the field to make sure that we get the best shot on goal. And so that really helped me kind of re-center and, and, and find that. So now, for example, at Clue, you know, I, I interview a user every week. It's part of my religious practice. Like every Friday, I speak to a user. It's um, great. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's one of the highlights of my week. I, I have a commitment to the team that I will read every transcript of every interview that they do with users. And so obviously I, I'm often behind. That's the idea. I should be behind. There should be so many interviews happening that I can't keep up. But that means that I have vast, vast quantities of qualitative information coming to me so that I can really be close to the customer. And so that was... Also, it also means you're not disconnected from the operational side of things, right? Yeah. The thing about product is always those nuance and those little details that actually make things a lot harder than they seem. And it's it's always a great position of privilege to be in a product leadership position and not have to break mm-hmm. your head on that too much. But yeah. So I think those, that was the the single biggest lesson for me at Shazam and and working in the Valley. Super interesting to hear you talk about the spikes. I think this is something I definitely tell junior product managers when they, you know, reach out for advice or stuff like that. It's like knowing your strengths and weaknesses and how do you leverage your strengths to put you in a you know, singular position in the team and how there's also this like this exactly what you're saying, the role of influence, right? Because bringing insight and building you know, there's a lot of like other skills around this, right? There's like storytelling, communications that you mentioned previously. And if you like bring all of this together, it builds up into this competency of what I call influence, your ability Mm. to like tell the story to people, bring the insights and drive decision-making in a particular direction that will, you know, eventually have impact for the business. So that resonates a lot. I look at product management from like, you know, craft and human skills perspectives. And I can see that. I, I don't know if you agree, but I tend to, to see that the most successful product people are those who have a lot of spikes in the human skills department, because the, the craft skills is a bit like your framework of, you know, aptitude, attitude, and, and skills. The skills part, people can learn, right? People can go do some training, but the attitude, aptitude, or, or the, the human skills part, you've, it comes through experience and it comes through, you know, introspection, self-reflection. And this maturity often comes, only comes with time or, you know, you've had the chance, like people like you, to experience some really formative things early on. But what I can see is that, yeah, it's the thing that actually makes a difference when I look at a lot of successful product managers out there, you were mentioning the top 1% earlier. Is that these spikes in the in the human skills department? Yeah, and I think your point around influence is really is really important. At the end of the day, PMs have no formal authority, right? What we have is the ability to influence, and influence is made up of two things: people who are influential. They're doing two things in that moment when they're with someone. They they bring it's influence is made up of engagement and gravitas, right? And engagement is I am so excited and happy to be here. That's the human like draw that draws us together. And the gravitas is, and I have every right to be here. And most product managers do really well on the engagement side because we're usually pretty excited and happy about what we're doing. But the 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 self-doubt comes on the gravitas side. Do I really have a right to be here? What right do I have? And if you if you have the insight however you get inside, then you know you've got the gravitas. You know you're, you're resting on solid ground. You know you have the right to be there because you're bringing something. You're, you're bringing 
whatever that insight is, and that's what gives you the right to be there. And then you can be influential, right? And so we don't have we don't have any formal authority over anything, but you know, Archimedes said, give me a lever long enough and a place to stand and I can move the world. And that that insight and that influence is our lever. And then we can move a whole organization, an entire organization without any formal authority. Thanks for that. Such an, such an exciting conversation. I think like we can talk about this for hours, right? So we've talked about your time at Vend. We've talked a little bit about Shazam and, you know, this flipping moment you had also just transition, transitioning into the VP role. You also mentioned something around, we, we were talking about human skills and communication and influence. You talked to me about this thing called Half-Life of Stress and it's only six weeks. And I was like, sorry, what? And I think it's really interesting framework to think about how you communicate in the organization, right? Can you tell us a little bit about this? A hundred percent. I too was very, so this comes from, there's a, there's a, a pair of Italian social scientists who've done a lot of work on this and they have a, on, a lot of work on trust. And because obviously trust is the fundamental, I mean, like all of Western capitalism runs on trust, right? Like that way of contracts is a way of formalizing trust. Trust is the thing that enables human cooperation and human cooperation is what enables us to do things. And trust is so, so important. We all know there's something about trust, right? Like that it's a complicated thing and that it's not straightforward. And these, these Italian social scientists did this work and have this, this model around and realized that it has a, the half-life, right? Like after six weeks, it degrades. We start to lose trust in people and things. And the only thing that restarts that half-life is observability or visibility. So visibility, being able to see, because we're, that's the way humans work. We, we need to see, like touch, feel, like see what's going on with you. That's what restarts that half-life of trust. And I often work with product teams who say, well, we should be an empowered product team. That's what everybody writes about, right? That's how we will deliver great products. You shouldn't tell us what to build. I'm like, okay, cool. That's, I don't know. It just feels a little bit teenagey to me, right? Like you can't demand trust, you have to earn trust. And the only way you earn trust is through accountability, which by the way, again, let's talk about the CEO, is the only thing the CEO wants. The CEO wants people who are accountable. And how are you accountable? You're visible. You turn up and you show the work, right? I have this conversation often with teams around where people say, but the work should speak for itself. I'm like, how? Well, the work should speak for itself. But how? Work is inert. <laughs> How could it speak? It has no voice. It has a lot of personality, you know. <laughs> like the work can't speak for itself. You need to speak for the work. Step in front of the work. That's a, a mantra of mine. Step in front of the work. You have to step in front of the work and you have to create this visibility and you have to do it over and over and over and over. And it's a grind. There's no getting away from this, right? Because of the half-life, you can't just do it once and be like, yeah, I told everybody. They should know now. They should trust me. Like if you do it once and then disappear for eight weeks. Sure enough, people will say, but what are they even doing over there? Like, it's a great idea. They should do this. Why aren't they doing this? They should do this. You know, and that, that pressure that comes when they, people start telling you what to build is because they don't trust you and they don't trust you because they don't know what you're building and why. So you have to drive this visibility. At Vend, we built a, a lot of structure, actually quite formalized structure around this principle so that we had quite a lot of comms. I'm, this is not... <laughs> It's not, I'm not saying everybody should do this. You know, you have to figure out what's right for the stage and age and size of a different team in each company and team. But we, for us and the stage and the problems that we had and the, where we wanted to get to, we, we put in a bunch of things to make sure that there was never more than four weeks between people hearing from us. So we had, we would send a monthly, I'm sure most people do this, right? But putting it all together was the, the point for us. So we would send monthly release notes to the entire organization so that every four weeks, Everybody knew that we were shipping and creating value. The important thing is that we don't just list what we've shipped. We've shipped, we talk about why. Like, why have we shipped this thing? What is the problem that we're solving? What is the impact that we expect it to have? Every four weeks, we would send something to customers so that customers would hear from us every four weeks and realize that we're shipping value every four weeks. And we would send that to the whole organization so that everybody could see that we were also telling customers about it, right? Every four weeks, we had an all hand. So we would always have a product section in there. And it would be very simple. Like what we shipped last month and why, three things that are better this month, three things will be better next month, see you later. Like not too long because people don't really want to pay that much attention. We would have a, a monthly, we had a thing called product steering, which had a pre-read that would go, the pre-read's very important, thinking through writing so you can get to a lot of detail. And then in the meeting itself, it started out with the exec team, but then we had all VPs, heads, directors attend. And we would really literally show, like if this thing about visibility, we would literally show the progress on the product, very focused on demos like actually physically see, touch and feel what was going on with the product. There again, monthly catch-ups between product and sales, product and support, product and CS, with rotating ownership of the PMs in this. It's a lot, you know, it's a lot of work. And even though 
a lot of it, you know, I think the building blocks are like Legos. You know, if you're working on something, you should know why you're working on it and you should know how yeah. it connects to value. So lifting that up and putting it in a newsletter, putting it in a pre-read, putting it in some slides shouldn't be that hard. But you've got to do Correct. that work up front. And PMs complain constantly about it. I've <laughs> constantly being told, why do we have to do this? Like, this is too much. Why can't we, you know, automate some of this? Like, can't we outsource it? And the thing is, though, when you do that over and over again, you go from a position, which is what we were in when I started at the end of, what does PD even do? Like, why? Do, what is mm -hmm. the point? Like, they don't talk to anyone. What are they doing? They don't ship anything to... No, not everyone's going to know what you're doing all the time, but there was no credible reason anymore where people yeah. could say, oh, but I don't know what they do. What's the point of it? Because, and you know, like this is getting into the nitty gritty of kind of like, I guess, managing at a, at a senior level in an organization, but that happens, right? Like at, at some point in time, always my, my colleague who ran sales in X territory would say to the CEO, ah, but you know, like what is product even doing? But once we had all the place, the CEO and I had two CEOs in this time, so they're both, they're but like, but are you going to product steering? And if they didn't say yes, they were like, well, it's not products for you, turn off. <laughs> yeah. Like you create, there's no excuse to not know at that point. And so mm -hmm. that discipline really helps in terms of the trust and building the trust. And then look, you know, you do an acquisition. That's the ultimate in like, what do you people even do? And if you are acquired by a company that's on the other side of the world and you're down in little old New Zealand and everyone's like, New Zealand? Do you even do product down there? It's, it's, you know, it's very useful to have done a lot of practice and showing up, yeah. communicating yeah. and talking about impact. And that was transformative for us post-acquisition. Yeah. And I think like what, what I'm also taking from this conversation, specifically this, this context and, and the work you, you did at Vend is, so first of all, how all the work you're doing at some point is going to translate into the valuation of the company. And I think People have to think about it this way also, because it's important what the outcome is. Like, are you trying to, to sell this company? Are you going for an exit? Are you trying to IPO? Like, what, what is the strategy? Because it mm -hmm. also, it has a lot of implications in the type and amount of work you put in. And something else you mentioned, you talked about discipline. I think that's really important. There's something about building this muscle. So repetition for me is, I read the, I recently read Atomic Habits from James Clear, and he talks mm -hmm. about the power of, of habits and how, how it helps you build these new muscles and how just by doing something regularly, suddenly, you know, you were somebody who had some level of influence in the product organization, but now because you're sending this like bi-weekly newsletter about how your squad is doing or whatever, suddenly in the organization, everybody knows you, you've got like status and you're being invited to like board meetings and stuff like that. Right. And yeah. This is how it happens. You've got to put in the work. And, and I absolutely agree with what you've been saying. Yeah, I think this is even more important in the hybrid environment that we're in now. You know, this, mm. too, too many people, again, there's something, they revert to the, the work should speak for itself. But if you don't, like the dirty secret of management is that visibility, I mean, visibility builds trust. Like here's all the stuff we're talking about. But if you really, to your point around, like how do I become an influential person? How do I get promoted? Like those, there are mechanics around all of that. And the, the mechanics are that when it's time for those things to happen, the senior leaders and eventually the management team sit in a room and we have a thing called calibration. I personally hate calibration. It's one of the things like I most dislike. I have I, a whole, I, every organization has to do it because you have a finite pool of money, right? But, <laughs> but so calibration happens and calibration, like for those of you who have never been there or have never been in promotion rounds, what happens, that means is that a bunch of managers sit there and say, well, my person A, I think we should give this rating and this amount to. And other people say yes or no. <laughs> and because there's only a finite pool, right? And everybody is, if you put everybody bids in, it's always more than the pool. And so there's this negotiation that has to happen. And if nobody else in that room knows who you are and they don't know the work that you've done, it's just your manager on their own trying to make the case for you. And the other people will be like, but yeah, I don't even know this person. When it goes really well, you've made that visibility and people have that trust. And so your manager says, I think person A should get this promotion for this reason. So everyone goes, oh yeah, that piece of work they did there was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, we should totally, yeah, totally agree with that. And then it's, right? this is actually how it works. And so it's important. Yeah, I think that like, what, one of the things I've also seen is, and then we can, we can close this, <laughs> this little section about calibration. It also sometimes comes down to who is fighting for you. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I remember this example of 
some people who are doing really well in a particular team, but that their manager wasn't particularly vocal or, you know, just didn't have a strong personality or wasn't necessarily super influential. We knew that at the end of the year, these people wouldn't be the, the ones that were going to be promoted, even though they did some amazing work. So sometimes it also comes down to who is in that forum fighting for you and what's their personality and are they going to be shouting louder than anybody else, right? This, yeah. this, system, this system has a lot of cracks, right? It's not a very robust system. 100%. And look, you can, I guess this is where it's a bit like real politic. I completely agree. I don't, I personally highly dislike those moments. As I mentioned, calibration, for example, is one of my most dreaded moments in the year. And you can spend your head, you could spend your time banging your head against the wall and saying it's bad and it's a, it's a wrong system. Sure. But unless you've got a better alternative, it's what will exist. So either you yeah. find a way to make You've it. You've got to play the game, right? Yeah. If you want yeah. the outcomes, if you don't want the outcomes of the game, then great. You could go off and create your own game somewhere else. And I think that's brilliant. And actually, that's where some of the most amazing, innov innovative things in this world come from. People saying, mm -hmm. nah, I don't want any part of that. I'll see you later and I'll do my own thing. Great. <laughs> and if you want to be in the game, then you need to understand the rules of the game. Yeah, correct. Thank you for bringing some wisdom to this conversation. Before we wrap up, I'm, I want us to talk about the next segment in the show, which is the treasure chest. This is where you as an experienced product person share some of the things that have really been transformational and helpful for you in terms of like frameworks and secret sources you've seen, you've used. What have been some of these helpful resources that have helped you deliver and have impact as a, as a product person through, through the years? Yeah, I, I love this section of your show. I think it's really, it's one of my favorite sections. And I have to say, when I was thinking about this, I realized that almost none of them are technical product things. I mean, for me, I, a product person must be able to think through writing. Thinking through writing is one of the ways that we can be most influential. And it's also really good for clarifying the way you think. I, if you haven't read Barbara Minto's The Pyramid Principle, like every product manager should read that, especially the SCQA framework, which is the situation, complication, question and answer framework. It's like, this is how management consultants are so influential because they use this. They, they think through writing, they understand this framework and, and you too can use this to, to move, to move things. It's also how I learned this when I was at the bank, because we had this training course around presentation skills and mm -hmm. the person leading the course, one of the like brilliant managing directors of wealth finance at, at Barclays, he Talk to us about this framework and explain how fairy tales are also structured using the same framework. That is a great um, point. And so this was, when he talked about it, I was like, what is this guy talking about? And then we went through a bunch of Disney examples, right? And mm. he actually showed us like, you know, situation, complication, eventually solution because, you know, hero comes in, saves the day, but. Actually, every, think about every single fairy tale and, and, and you know, child story you've, you've been told before. They're all based on the same framework. And the thing with this framework is it's the way it's been built. There's something quite visceral about it because mm -hmm. it appeals to our most like instinct human nature, right? Mm -hmm. And that, I think that's part of what makes it so powerful. Yeah, I, yeah, I just, I love it. I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm a novice in it and I just we're going to keep practicing that until the day I can stop you know, the day I can't write anymore because it's so, yeah. it's just so much to go on learning there. I think there's a, there's an article that I ask everybody who starts working with me to read by a guy called Henry Mintzberg, who's a, a big, big strategy thinker who was writing. And this article was called Of Strategies Deliberate and Emergent. And he wrote it in the eighties. <laughs> I find people often go, well, it was written in the eighties. Is that still relevant? I'm like, strategy doesn't really age. <laughs> um, so, but it's really, it's really about how strategy is a, as a pattern in a series of decisions, right? Or in a stream of decisions. And how do you approach that pattern and how do you think about it? You know, there, there are, it's a continuum, right? From very, as he calls it, deliberate or planned to emergent. And I think every organization has a cultural center on that, on that spectrum. And every individual has a, a natural place where their brain just naturally sits on that spectrum. And so I think it's really important that people, this is your point about introspection. You need to understand if you're a product person, strategy is critical and you need to understand what, how do you think about strategy? What naturally appeals to your brain? How, where do you naturally sit in this? And the reason I ask people to read it is that for I, for example, am naturally very down the emergent end, which tends to mean that I'm very like, we'll see what, like we take the signals and then we move with the signals. If you're a very planned person, 
I'll drive you nuts. And so if we know that together, we can go, oh, okay. Can work okay, better, but, yeah. Well, like this is me being too far here. This is you. That's how we meet in the middle. And so I think that's a really, it's just really good. It's a very super readable article and it makes people, I think gives them an the option to just think about strategy as a thing that you can think about. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We talked about how people in, outside of your product thinking of which the core tenants are, think about the problem, not solution, for example. Like they, those are not things that other people in the org are trained in or even care about. Mm-hmm. So thinking in, in strategy or business models, even just the big classics like Porter's Five Forces or BCG's Growth Matrix or McKinsey's Structure Conduct Performance. I actually particularly love Structure Conduct Performance for analyzing a, a category. But like this helps you find the language to talk to those capital-focused functions like the CEO, like finance, and therefore flip your perspective and speak their language. Because if you turn up with product thinking, they're just going to look at you like you're annoying and hand-waving, right? So you need to turn up with the the thing that's in their space. And then lastly, I coming back to our little discussion about real politics, Jeffrey Pfeffer, who's this brilliant person who works at Stanford, has a lot, done a lot of work on power in the workplace and influence in the workplace. And his work, he has, a, he has a whole course there called Managing with Power, which I've never done, but I've read the books and it's very uncomfortable and yet it's very important work. And uh, I recommend that people read it and lean into the discomfort and think about what he's trying to tell you and, and hear the lessons there because Again, it comes back to this point around if you want to have impact, you need to have influence. And how do you have influence is the question. Thank you so much for sharing these. You know, you've got this great career and have had the chance to work in some really great companies. What have been some of the key accelerators for you in in your career? You know, has it been your ability to work with some incredible mentors? Did you like get access to some specific training or like what have been some of these catalysts for you? I find this a very difficult question because on the one hand, I also feel like I'm still wandering along, still learning, following my nose. You know, it, I, I'm reminded regularly of the things that I need to do better and that I can keep learning and, and keep wanting to do better. I, I love what we do. I love working. I, I don't, I don't think about retirement as a thing. I just think about keeping going. And so I don't, yeah, I don't kind of feel I feel like I'm still a work in progress and I feel like the, with some of the things that we've talked about today and some of, I mean, I've been so lucky to work with everybody. I've worked with so many amazing people, right? Like everyone you work with, you can learn from. And that's, I think. You've got to be in this mindset, right? You've got to be open-minded enough to be in the state you just described because saying everybody you work with, you can learn from sounds a bit obvious, but I think if you're not in the actual state of mind to receive this, then it doesn't happen, right? I think you're right. And it's very, but it's so exciting when you realize that you can learn from everybody, right? Because every interaction is, I don't know, I just, I love, I mean, that's why I get so energized and working with teams and every day I get to work with people and I sit there and I think, that's brilliant what you've come up with. I would never have come up with that. Oh, that's great. Like I find that very energizing, right? And that's the, I think that probably being energized by others has been a big accelerant for me and I hope will continue to help me learn and grow. I I think some of the things that we've talked about is like specific insights in terms of helping that growth. And I'm still learning that, you know, I find in my interactions with the Clue board, I love working with the board at Clue because they are very passionate about the product and they, they are constantly helping me flip that perspective into that capital led perspective and understanding what, you know, how they, they, because they think and see different patterns. Right. And so that's, I love that. And I'm still learning there. I think the key is just about to still be learning. Yeah. Thank you. And last question, which I personally love in this show is, what advice would you give to your early career self? Like now that you've, you know, done a little bit of this journey and, and seen this movie a couple of times. Yeah. What would you, what would you tell your, your early career self? Yeah. These are the things that I still tell myself and that I still need to work on. And I have to remember to practice. So get on with understanding the numbers and understand the numbers. If I could go back, I would tell myself to understand the numbers even sooner. Susan Colantuomo has this really cool, cool model of numbers up, people down. So when you're talking to people kind of up the chain, lead with numbers. When you're talking with people who, who report to you, lead with people. But like this numbers up, people down framework and really having those numbers at the tip of your tongue ready to go. I think the second thing is you're literally paid to have an opinion. Like this is this point about the insight thing. I mean, I, in product, I don't coach, I don't design. Like I'm literally paid to have an opinion. So do the work. We're creators, right? <laughs> no, but that opinion is worth something. And so do the work to have it. And, and that's, that's what I, 
I guess my constant drive is to keep doing the practice so that I have an opinion and that it's a worthwhile opinion that's useful to people. And then the thing that I, I, I have to remind myself a lot of, and, the, and I would have, you know, done, should have started earlier too, is the like lean into the things that are a bit, oh, feel a bit hard, <laughs> you know, it's like, like lean into those things because those things drift to the bottom of the list for a reason. And I notice that they, the things that drift to the bottom of my list and when I have that feeling, I see it with other people too, like communicating about the work, stepping in front of the work or, um, networking or something that feels hard and drifts to the bottom of the list. There's a reason that means it's it's hard work and hard work is valuable work and will give you will give you some impact and give you a chance to like learn and grow and therefore set yourself apart. So you know I see it with PM like junior PM like the work of interviewing often drifts to the bottom of the list. Lean into the thing that feels the drifts because it's hard because that will help you grow and push you and give you the chance to stand out. Brilliant. Listen, thank you so much for spending this hour with us on the show. I have found this incredibly insightful. You were talking about, you know, keeping an open mind and always be learning. This is how I learn by interacting with people like you. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this and sharing your, your experience on the show. Really appreciate it. Before we leave, we hadn't had the chance to talk about Clue. Why don't we talk a little bit about Clue? Because I'm quite fascinated by the work you guys are doing. And I have to say, I didn't know Clue much, but when I started to read about Clue, I looked at the numbers in terms of monthly active users and I thought, wow, this company is doing something interesting here, right? And solving a real, real problem in the world. So please, why don't you tell us a little bit about Clue, what you guys are doing? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. Clue is, I mean, so as we've mentioned, we're, a, I guess, a period tracking and reproductive health tracking app for women and people with cycles. We have about 11 million monthly active users across the world, been going for, I think, 10 years. And the thing that is, oh, it's just a fascinating area to work on because it's so, it's so personal and uh, intense for people, right? So our reproductive health and our reproductive selves are, like our reproductive health is indivisible from our overall health, right? It's not like if you have a uterus, like suddenly there's a line drawn between, you know, hormones, like everything in the human body is driven, is about hormones. Every, like hormones are the messengers that drive things in our bodies. And so understanding this is really important. And my personal journey and connection with Clue is, is quite, so I, my husband and I have three children who are the center of our worlds. And like very many people, I spent my, you know, we spent our early years of our marriage thinking you can get pregnant at any moment. Oh no. And then we were finally ready to start trying to have a family and Oh no, I couldn't get pregnant. <laughs> it was a, I mean, I laugh about it now because, you know, we're very fortunate to have the kids, but it was a pretty, like struggles with fertility are just heartbreaking and they go right to our hopes, dreams, our identity, our views around our future together as ourselves, as a family, as a couple. Like it's a, it's a really hard, hard thing to go through. And Anthony and I, we were in the US when this was happening for us and God bless America and their liberal approach to fertility drugs. We were fortunate enough through fertility treatment and through the drug rounds to, to have our first child. And as I was going through that process, and when you go through those clinics, you know, we talk about being data-driven, it's highly data-driven. You're being tested every second day. You have all sorts of crazy tests and you learn, well, I learned huge amounts about me. And I was Bluntly, I was embarrassed to realize how little I knew about myself and about my cycle and about. It's think, not part of not part of education, right? No, and I and I remember thinking at one point when I was in the middle of some horrible, physically painful procedure, like if I had known more, could I have avoided this? <laughs> and so I swore, you know, I was like, we're gonna we're gonna take all this learning about data and we're gonna track it for the, you know, because I knew. We were so excited and grateful to be able to have one. And I knew within three weeks, I was like, I just that longing for another baby was very strong. And so, so I, I took that and used trackers. And actually, we had two more babies with that intervention. I had my, my last child with our E intervention using trackers only when I was 40. And so I think the, I just, you know, I don't, I think there's nothing more life changing than power and control and information over your reproductive health, actually, whichever way you go. And so, being able to work on a product that helps people with that is just a deeply exciting mission. And so we are really, you know, Clue really is about trying to provide people with that information that we don't get, provide it to them, their data safely. You know, we, we, this is one of the great benefits to being in the, in the EU and being under GDPR, like we are under the strictest data regime in the world. And we can help them understand what's going on in their bodies, orient them in that, and then they can do what they want with that information, that power, because it's theirs. They have agency when we do that. Correct. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So thank you so much for sharing that story with, with us. Listen, all the best with everything in the future for you at Clue. Again, thank you so much for sharing your experience on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a huge privilege to be invited to be on the show. I've been a long time admirer and it's, yeah, I, I really I feel a little bit like, wow, do I really get to be on the show? This is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Speak to you soon. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.